Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. There's nothing wrong with me because of the color of my skin. Award-winning scholar and author Ibram X. Kendi wants us to imagine a world where all kids of color could be taught to internalize that anti-racist idea and develop their sense of self through it. Kendi joins us to talk about how we as parents or caregivers can help them do that and why we need to work to build an anti-racist society to protect children. His new book is How to Raise an Anti-Racist. Ibram X. Kendi, welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me. You tell this very poignant and relatable story in the book about picking up your one-year-old daughter, Amani, one-year-old at the time from daycare, and noticing that she's playing with a blue-eyed white doll. You didn't think much of it at first, but what happened in the days after? Can you tell us that story? Sure. So, yeah, I didn't think much of it at first because, you know, I went to put the doll aside to pick her up and take her home. And, you know, she whimpered a little bit the first day. But then the second day, uh, we, one of us, either my wife and I, came and she was playing with that doll. And it was harder to, to pry her away from the doll and each day over the course of a week, it got harder and harder. And each day we grew more and more um, concerned trying to figure out what was happening. Was she attached to the doll just because it, it was a doll or was she attached to the whiteness of the doll? And, and, and that's not something we knew. And what actually happened was on the final sort of day, uh, I, uh, when Sadiqa, my wife, and I came to pick her up, and she really likes it, loves it when we both would come to pick her up. So she personally tossed the doll aside and ran and, and gave us a hug. But on that day, I also went to look in the actual toy box of the daycare, and I saw that every doll uh, looked white. So there wasn't a doll that looked black or Asian or native or Latinx, you know, pretty much all the dolls looked white. So she didn't really even have a choice, you know, in the matter. And it became, for me, part of a, you know, a larger metaphor that, you know, are we giving our children the choices uh, to see the entirety of, of the human rainbow, you know, in, in, in play, in something as simple as play? You Describe that moment of seeing all the white dolls, that those were the only options for Amani to play with. As a failure of the doll test, you actually write, I had failed my doll test. And I was so struck by the word failed. Why did you see that as a failure? 
I saw it as a failure because I was wondering what was potentially up with my daughter as opposed to wondering what was up with the environment. And I think particularly for the youngest of children, and Imani at that point was a little over one years old, we have to be very cognizant about whether we are child-proofing the racial environment of our children. And I think, for instance, you know, when we don't child-proof something in the home and one of our children is hurt as a result, we immediately think, okay, I should have done that. Like the environment was not safe for my child. And so I think instead of me realizing that the that environment where all the dolls look the same was not safe, you know, instead I was wondering potentially what was wrong with my child. And in focusing on what could be wrong with her, does that just reflect also the issues within our society in terms of who we place responsibility on uh, for responding to uh, a limited environment, uh, a limiting environment like that? Yeah, I mean, we, we tend to blame people as opposed to power and policy. And people are in our faces. We see what they're doing and not doing. We can understand what people are doing or not doing. We don't necessarily understand the behavior of policy. It's distant, and so is power. And and I think, you know, too often with our children, in particular, we don't recognize how the choices that we've made, or even not made. So in my case, I did not when we put her in that daycare, I did not go and check to see if the toy box had, uh, you know, a diverse set of dolls. I didn't do that. And and I think, you know, in, in, instead of us trying to, to, to consistently think about the type of environment we're putting our children in, when our child, let's say, blurts out they're older and they blurt out something that is stereotypical, you, you know, parents... Uh, think that there's something wrong with the child. Don't say that. <laughs> Rather than what could I have done differently or what am I not doing that is resulting in them thinking of, thinking that way? The other thing that was so interesting was you also talk about how you and Sadiqa questioned whether you were being too sensitive initially to seeing her playing with a white doll, whether you were being too, I think, unduly sensitive is the words yeah. are the words that you use there. What do you make of that? Well, because, you know, we just did not know the cause of this. And we did not know whether she was playing with that white doll because of the doll's whiteness. And we were thinking, you know what, should we even be worried about that? Like, you know, she's questioning yourself. Yeah. She's only one years old. And, you know, at the time, I had not actually studied the racial attitudes of young children. I did not know that, you know, according to studies, by three years old, our kids, according to one scholar, has an adult-like conception of race. Our kids are already attaching uh, negative traits and positive traits to skin colors. I did not know that, you know, at the time. And if anything, that um, really, that uh, incident really propelled me to really want to study uh, the racial attitudes of children, which ultimately led me to, to writing How to Raise an Anti-Racist. There's a study that you referenced from the 1940s by Mamie and Kenneth 
Kenneth Clark, where they are consistently, they're showing black children a white doll and a black doll, and the black children are consistently choosing the black doll in response to questions like, which doll would you rather play with? Which doll is the nice doll? And Mm -hmm. so on, Um, which was, as you note in the book, on your mind. But then you also talk about a, a study that was done later by Margaret Beale Spencer, where, yes, they did see some of that still lasting into the 2010s, but they took she took the experiment further mm-hmm. and saw the impact also on white children. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and so um, she indeed uh, not only asked, you know, had black and white dolls and asked uh, young children, you know, uh, which doll they had a preference for. Uh, she asked both black and white children, and and what she found was that black children still had a preference for for white dolls, considered those dolls to be better uh, than than the black looking dolls. But white children also had a preference, and actually had, they had a greater preference than even those um, those black kids. And she. The, the psychologists and, and the researchers uh, identified that both kids were suffering from what uh, the researchers called white bias. And, and they, the researchers suspected that white children had greater levels of white bias simply because their parents were less likely to talk to them <laughs> about or I should say counteract those ideas that white is better uh, and, 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 and black, you know, is not. And that's something that pa- black parents are more likely to talk to their children about. Which really then underscores the point of your book about why it's so important and the kinds of tools that we can use to try to teach our kids yeah. <laughs> and that actively doing that can have an impact. And if I can just say very quickly, it is it is incredibly important, particularly for parents of white children, to teach them that they are special when they are nice. They're special when they share. They're, they're special when they're empathetic. But they're not special because they're white. They're not special because of their skin color. And if you don't actively teach that to a white child, the world is going to teach them something different. Talk about colorblind socializing and why you see that as one of the predominant forms of racial socializing that parents and caregivers do, even across um, racial groups, though, at different degrees. Sure. So let's talk about a little bit older children. You know, if you have a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old child and you, A, never talk to them about race and racism, B, anytime they want to talk to you about race or racism, have a question, you say, don't talk about that. We don't see color. And so, but they see color. And more importantly, they see racial disparities in their own communities. They see that, you know, white people on average have more. They see that Latinx people on average have less. And they're trying to figure out why. And the world messages, direct and indirect, are telling them that certain people have more because they are more. So they're being told that white people have more because they are more. You're not trying to counteract that because you've already told them, don't talk to me about it. And then literally in schools, because of the paucity 
the scarcity of uh, materials by authors of color. Uh, uh, literally, white people are more in the curriculum. So because we're not explaining to them that racism is the cause of why you have these racial disparities, it's not that white people are more. They're internalizing the idea that white people are more, and then they're literally seeing white people as more in the curriculum. And all the while, nobody's talking to them about anything, right? Nobody's talking to them about race. Everybody's imagining that they're colorblind when indeed they're internalizing these 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 harmful ideas. Yeah, when you say that uh, we don't talk about race, what we're really doing um, is basically not talking about racism. Exactly. <laughs> what, though, is so interesting is that you yourself, you tell the story of stumbling into colorblind socializing. What do you think were the factors that caused you to stumble into it, even at the time when you were, you know, writing Stamped and really thinking so much about these issues? So if if white parents and teachers typically stumble into colorblind socializing out of this fear that if I talk to my child about race, that's going to make them racist, which isn't true. It's actually going to protect them from being uh, racist. It, then parents of color are, are more likely to not engage their children about race and racism because they want to protect them from the sort of difficulty of explaining to them the pain you know, that, 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 that racism is. Like, you know, if you're a person of color, likely you've had lived experiences with racism. You don't want your child to have to hear about that, to go through that. So if anything, you want to protect your child right, You don't want to from steal it. their innocence or joy. Exactly. And... And, and so that's precisely what I was thinking. I don't want to steal her innocence. I don't want to steal my daughter's joy. But I ultimately realized that and I think this is something that just we all learn as parents, that we can't simply protect our children from everything. <laughs> but what we can do is teach them how to protect themselves. And and once I realized, OK, you know what, I can't protect my daughter from ever being told that there's something wrong with you because of the color of your skin. But I can actively tell her we can actively talk about the fact that there's nothing wrong with you because of the color of your skin, so that if anybody ever tells her that, she'll be able to know that that's not true. What do you say to parents of color who say that they're worried that if they share, they share the reality of the racist society that their kids are part of and experiencing, really, without really bringing it to their consciousness, that they're worried that also, I think... The way you described it in the book was that a, a parent told you they would essentially become lethargic mm -hmm. in their racial deprivation. What do you say to parents who worry about that? That they will, yeah. I think hope. that's a, I think that's a, incredibly important worry. I mean, I completely understand why parents are worried about that, but I think we have to uh, put that worry up against an even greater worry, and and that is when a child particularly like you have a black teenager, when they're facing, according to studies, five instances of racist discrimination per day, how are they dealing with that? How are they internalizing it? Are they saying 
this is happening to me because there's something wrong with me. Because they, if we haven't told them about what racism is, how else are they going to explain why they get keep why they keep getting stopped and frisked by the police? Why people keep following them in the stores? And, and so they're going to think people are following me because I must be dangerous. I must be, you know, criminal like. And, and so we have to just acknowledge that if we don't talk to them about racism, then they're not going to be able to understand uh, the ways in which the experiences of racism that they're going to face. And then they're going to likely blame themselves, which is precisely what I did when I was a teenager. And in terms of parents of white kids or caregivers to white children who say either they don't want their kids to feel discomfort is one thing. The other thing that you've heard parents tell you is that they don't want to start to treat their friends of color differently once they learn about the reality of racism and racial discrimination in our society. What do you often say to them in response to those concerns? Well, if we are teaching them racial equality, if we're teaching them that all the racial groups are equals, if we're teaching them to respect different cultures, then us talking to them about those topics is going to cause them to treat their friends of color better (laughs) in a more equal and equitable and respectful fashion. And what they will also be likely to do is to defend their friends against other children who are acting in a prejudicial manner, which will then further bind them to their friends of color because their friends of color will see, yes, you know, my white friend stood up for me because they understand through what their parents and teachers have taught them how hurtful racism is to me. So what I'm saying is ultimately it will actually deepen their friendships uh, with, with, with kids of color. Yeah, it's almost like a brief moment of discomfort or a moment of learning through something is, is almost like inoculating in some yeah. ways. And, and just, you know, as a, as, a, as a larger point, you know, particularly, you know, there are, you know, I suspect studies show that people across racial groups are less are, are are just unlikely to have interracial friendships. It's mm-hmm. it's it's something that is just not common for any race. White Americans are the least likely to have uh, interracial friendships in this country. But those white Americans who are in in deep and loving uh, and long term friendships with people of color, I suspect it wouldn't surprise me if they had an understanding of racism. That, that allowed those friendships uh, to deepen so they could be a friend, be a supporter to their friend of color when they face, you know, something and they need a friend, you know, to support them. You know, as opposed to, you know, almost uh, because of the obliviousness, you know, making the issue sort of worse. And so I'm saying that to say that this is, you know, we're not just teaching our children, you know, we wouldn't be just teaching your, your white child to, to be able to, deepen friendships with, with, with kids of color, it's really deepening friendships with people of color over the course of their lives. We're talking with Ibram X. Kendi. 
Andrew W. Mellon, professor in the humanities and the founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. His new book is How to Raise an Anti-Racist. More after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Ibram X. Kendi about his new book, How to Raise an Anti-Racist. His other books include How to Be an Anti-Racist, Goodnight Racism, and Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. Just before the break, Dr. Kendi, you were talking about how you blamed yourself. And one of the things that I was struck by was your description of of the extent to which you were also subject to colorblind socializing as a kid, in particular, what happened to you in kindergarten and how your mom responded to it. Can you share that story? Sure. So my first school, I you know, went to daycare at a, at a YMCA and then ultimately you know, went to an elementary school. And my first kindergarten teacher within a few weeks was sending notes home to my parents claiming that I was misbehaving. And my parents were struck because like in my preschool, I had never received any notes home about misbehavior. And and so my mother decided that she was going to come up and observe the class. And, you know, ultimately what she observed was, you know, highly inexperienced teacher who was expecting students after they finished assignments to just sit at their desk and do nothing while other students finished. And, and those of us who would finish early would do what, what five-year-olds do uh, when they're not engaged, you know, figure out a way to get themselves engaged. Uh, and, and I was not the only student uh, who, who, was, who was doing that, but uh, I was probably seen because I was a, a black male student, you know, as having a, a behavioral problem. And, 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 you know, ultimately they, they took me out of that school, but they didn't necessarily explain to me why uh, they took me out of that school, what actually was happening, you know, to me. And it became sort of a pattern in which my parents would see that I'm experiencing uh, some, some form of racist, some racist practice and then they would remove me from the school, but not necessarily, we wouldn't necessarily talk about why. And um, and part of it I learned later was, was that, you know, my parents were very cognizant of racism. Uh, and, but on, a, on some level, uh, 
they didn't really know how to engage me about it. I kept thinking, what a profound burden for both of you to carry. As you're moving from school to school, I think you describe yourself as an army kid, almost protecting each other, but yet at the same time not able to protect each other. Have you ever talked about that with your with your mom after the fact? Yeah, and I, I've talked to her about, like, you know, my, my mother and my father, like, why wasn't, why didn't we really, um, you know, talk about what was really happening? And, you know, what they've told me is that, like, they didn't talk, their parents didn't talk to them, <laughs> you know, about what was happening. My mother grew up uh, in... Um, both in New York City and also in, in, in Jim Crow, Georgia. And, um, you know, it's, her parents, of course, would tell her, you know, when you go and visit your, your father on the, on the white side of town, don't talk to anybody, don't go into any driveways, don't go into any stores, just go there and go straight back, but didn't necessarily explain to them why. And so I think, which was they're trying to protect them, right, from what could happen to them if they stepped out of, the sort of color line, but at the same time, not really explaining to them why. And, and, and I just think it's incredibly important for, for, you know, for all parents to explain to their child uh, when they're making decisions, particularly if those decisions have to do with something like racism or, or sexism or any other form of bigotry. I think one of the things that's really lovely about your book is through the process of sharing the kinds of the kinds of mistakes or miscalculations that you have made as a parent that that your parents may have made as a parent I think really gives people a lot of permission to make mistakes because I feel like that is one of the things that stops people from engaging in discussing racism with with kids is that they worry they're worried they'll do it wrong actually I actually think our kids need to see us do it wrong. And the reason being is because they need to see how we're going to respond when we do it wrong. And the response to doing something wrong, you know, or doing something racist is going to model for them how they can be anti-racist. And so if to be racist is to always deny when we've made a mistake, when we've said or done something that's racist, to always claim we know everything about race or racism, then to be anti-racist is, to be, to, is, is the very opposite. To acknowledge, you know, that I just said something that's racist. To acknowledge when a child asks a question about, you know, why are 50% most of the black people, most of the people who are houseless in our community black? And we don't know. To say, I don't know. Like, and then to go with that child to the library or go to that child to the to the to the homeless shelter to ask questions and research why. So the child is seeing us as critical thinkers and critical thinking, you know, as I write about in How to Raise an Anti-Racist, according to one scholar, is the antithesis of prejudicial thinking. You know, and, and so I, I think that it's actually helpful for our children to see us make mistakes and repair those mistakes that we've made and for us, our children to see us not know and go about seeking the process of learning. 
Another piece of advice you give parents is to really try to harness and nurture a child's natural empathy. And you tell this very sweet story. I don't know if a lot of our listeners know that you were diagnosed with stage four colon cancer at the age of 35. You had major surgery. Your daughter sees you recovering, sees all these bandages over your body. Can you just share what Amani does? Sure. So, yeah, I... So after surgery and after, I mean, ICU in the hospital and, and I come home and I have bandages on, you know, on my stomach, uh, you know, I'm sitting on our living room on our couch and, you know, my daughter comes and I have on um, a, um, you know, I don't have on a shirt. And so she sees my bandages and uh, she just starts crying. And so, you know, my wife and my partner's there and we're trying to like say, why are you crying? And she's staring at the bandages, you know, as she's crying. And then I ask her, like, do you want some bandages to put on your belly? And she's she's she goes from bawling her crying to whimpering and says yes. And ultimately we get her bandages and, and ultimately uh, there was nothing more that she liked in the next few months <laughs> than a Band-Aid or a bandage that she could put on herself. So in a way, we, like, we healed together. And she saw, you know, the pain that I was feeling was the pain that she was feeling. And, and she wanted to, to heal with me. And she was two and a half years old. Yeah, I was going to ask you how old she was. So children have this natural empathy. And you say that that empathy also is such an important an important skill. It can be taught, right? So skill to to being anti-racist how do you nurture that in children what are some strategies so let, let me, let's let's give one example so when we're at the park and our our child is playing with another child and then for whatever reason our child you know hits hits that child you know there there's there's a punishment response and the punishment response is for us to sort of Scream at the child, yell at the child, don't do that. Um, take them in timeout, <laughs> you'll take them home. But then there's also the response of, of what's called inductive discipline, which teaches empathy, which is to say to our child, how do you think what you did made that other child feel? And, and so the, our child is being asked to step into the mind of that other child, right? Which is that we're asking them to be empathetic in, in a moment that they just harmed someone else, for them to think about how they've harmed that person. You know, and obviously if they say, oh, you know, it probably hurt them. So do you think you should help them to feel better? And so then they also see it's their responsibility that when you hurt someone, right, that you should aid them, you should seek to help them. All of that is nurturing empathy, you know, in a child and, and, and the nurturing of empathy in a child for other people, for different people, is going to allow our children, when they see someone of another race who is being subjected to racist violence or who is being subjected to, 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 to harm, they see themselves and they fight against it. Is there a difference between being anti-racist, raising an anti-racist and raising a child to not be racist? So I actually think that ultimately our children and really our young adults are going to leave our homes either thinking 
that the racial groups are equals or they're thinking that certain racial groups are better or worse than others. Our, our, our kids are going to leave the home either thinking that the cause of disparities and racial disparities in our society is what's wrong with those bad rules or for some structural racism. And others are going to think people have more or less because they are more or less. And so the question for us is which type of ideas do we want our children to have when they leave the home? Racist or anti-racist ideas. The, the construct of not racist is, is, is a construct that even young adults use like their parents when they say something that's racist and someone else calls it out and the response is, no, no, I'm not racist. And, and so it's really a construct of denial. And, and so ideally we'd want our children to generally recognize the racial groups as equals, but then also when they say something that is derogatory towards a racial group, they admit it and seek to repair, you know, in that empathetic fashion we were just talking about. We're talking with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research and a 2021 MacArthur Fellowship recipient. His new book is How to Raise an Anti-Racist. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. So I, I, that is one of the things that I'm I'm struck by with with your point around anti-racist as not an identity, but as a descriptor. Because when we think about it, it seems as an identity, then we end up not really doing the work of thinking about mm-hmm. how we are actually constantly confronted with the opportunity to make choices about whether or not we're going to behave in a in a racist or anti-racist way or choose to perpetuate racism or not. Exactly. And, and I, I think that it, it, I, I didn't, I came to that recognition that racist and even anti-racist are descriptive terms. They describe an idea, a policy, or even what a person is being based on what ideas they're expressing or policies they're supporting, or even inaction in the face of uh, uh, inequality. You know, I arrived at that through through research, through realizing that there were so many people over the course of history, as well as who are living today, who hold both racist and anti-racist ideas, depending on the racial group. So they see, let's say, Latinx people as equal to them. They see black people as inferior to them. They see white people as, as equal to them, or they see Asian people as, as inferior to them. The same person, right, holding... Uh, racist and anti-racist ideas for different racial groups. Or when it comes to education, they support equitable policies. But when it comes to the criminal legal system, they they support policies that is expanding the number of black and brown people who are incarcerated. So with those people, how can we say they're inherently racist or anti-racist? How can we say that is who they are? Well, what we can say is that when they are expressing a racist idea, they're being racist. When they're supporting an anti-racist policy, you know, they're being anti-racist. And what this also allows us, particularly as it relates to, you know, the teaching, you know, of children, is it allows us to know that our children, like us, they're going to be on a journey. And and we want to guide them along to make those anti-racist choices. We started our conversation talking about about dolls and about the availability of a whole range of diverse dolls around around kids. You also talk about books as a key tool. Um, can you talk about how you maybe curate or think about 
the books that you want to surround Amani with? So sure. So I I don't know. I I think for me books can be conversation starters. You know, particularly you know if we have a tradition in which we're reading a certain number of books, you know, in the morning or evening or at a particular time each day, you know, to our children. And and so it could spark conversations, right? Uh, but then it, it could also allow them to understand different ideas. And so for me, you know, of course, we, we have, a you know, a number of books uh, about, um, you know, black children that allow her to see herself and, and allow her to see that there's nothing wrong with her skin color or her hair texture. But we also have books about a little girl wearing a, a hijab and her being uh, ostracized for doing that. We, we, we have books about uh, Latinx immigrant, uh, you know, kids and uh, them asking sort of where are they from? And we, we have books about, you know, an, an Asian girl sort of knowing that the way her eyes are shaped, there's, it's <laughs> just as beautiful as the way anyone else's eyes are shaped. We, because we want her to understand uh, and, and, and really learn these ideas of equality in the way people are shaped, in the way people dress, in the way people look before the world tells her something different. Yeah. It's that three-step process you talk about that as you raise the child, one, to appreciate their own culture, then to appreciate what's distinct about other cultures, and, and third, to appreciate actually what's the same about all of us. Are there any thoughts you want to leave our listeners about what that is? It's, it's we're different, but we're the same. I mean, that's what just makes humanity so beautiful. That's the simultaneous expansiveness of difference that our children should see. Like, it's great. We want them to see all that difference. But then how can they simultaneously see all that difference and then see themselves? Like, that's the type of children we, we, we should be we should be raising because then they can embrace and connect uh, and build bridges, uh, you know, with humanity because not everyone's going to look like them and act like them and worship like them. And, and it's important for them to see all those other folks as, 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 as equal to they are. And for people who say, my kids are grown, <laughs> this is, it's too late. <laughs> what do you say to that? So I actually, throughout the book, Throughout how to raise an anti-racist, I use the term caregiver as opposed to, you know, parent or teacher. And the reason being is because the the people who are raising children are not just the parents right. or even the, the teachers. It's the aunts, it's the uncles, it's the cousins, it's the supervisor, I mean the, you know, the pediatricians, you know, it's the coaches, it's the neighbor, it's anyone who is saying or doing anything in front of children. <laughs> Because children are constantly watching and studying and learning, you know, from us. And so I, I, I think this this book, when we're thinking about raising children, uh, it, it really involves all of us. And it also really involves all of us because the book focuses on protecting our children from the dangers of racism while also calling on us all to eradicate racism so we don't have to protect our children sort of from it. 
Ibram X. Kendi. His book is How to Raise an Anti-Racist. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Susie Britton for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.